Hi, I'm Shauna Lutker. And I'm Mario Antiveros. Welcome back to Extras, Artists, and Rights. Each episode brings a group of artists around a table to talk together about what art can do. They share their strategies for reaching across the boundaries of their discipline, how they build bridges, how they work collectively, and how they create supportive conditions and opportunities. Today we bring you episode five, The Brown Ceiling and Possible Futures. We welcome artists Arshia Hawk, Marcus Quilin Nazario, Latipa, Mario Ibarra Jr., and Mario Antiveros is again our moderator. The artists gathered around a table today to discuss the artist's role in relation to institutions and how they are shaped by these institutions as well as how they strive to reshape institutions. They talk about creating alternative pedagogical structures and what is lost and gained as they operate within or outside of different kinds of spaces. Again, this episode was recorded in December 2019. One of the ways this conversation connects to the present moment, August 2020, is through their discussion of the brown ceiling, a term introduced by Maru Ibarra Jr. They discuss how the limited representations of black and brown people in the media get internalized and need to be questioned and dismantled on an individual and societal level in order to break through that ceiling. This gets pushed further when Latipa talks about the ways that imperialist dynamics are still underlying even well-intentioned discourses, like that of human rights and social justice. A reorientation of these discourses, interrogating the violence of whiteness and white supremacy, is key to breaking out of these cycles of oppression. Latipa asks, how can we think about possible futures that don't reproduce the violence of the present? A note, the artist Latipa was previously known as Michelle Dizon, and in this episode, she refers to herself as Michelle. You can find more information about this podcast, the artists, and their work on Extra's website at extraonline.org. All right. So if we could go around and uh, introduce ourselves. Hello, Marcus Quillen Nazario, artist, producer, curator, man about town. Michelle Dizon, artist, filmmaker, writer, educator. Theorist. Arshia Fatima Haq, artist, curator, informal archivist, and DJ. Um, my name is Mario Ibarra Jr. I'm an artist, uh, co-founder of Slanguage Studio, and I'm trying to start up an archive called the Ebarchive. So I'd like to welcome everyone. Um, part of what I hope today is that we can have more of a discussion rather than a Q&A sort of environment. But if there's ever a moment where you would like to jump in and lead a discussion or facilitate or moderate, please feel free to do that. Um, one of the things that uh, in the sort of general framework questions that we sent out, um, the, some of the, one of the most important ones, I think, was um, what's most urgent for you today? And how does that urgency connect to the ways of working with your ways of working with others and building solidarity and collaboration? And I think one of the things that we've also been talking about is that that sense of what's urgent can be very open-ended. Um, and so uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be politically oriented or about political obligation. One of the things we learned in an earlier discussion was that self-care was really urgent for many of the cultural workers and artists and curators. Um, and that opened up a really good discussion. So just as a sort of general opening thing, any what are some of the urgencies that you've been dealing with? 
Well, for me, um, this is Mario Ibarra. Um, for me, one of the kind of essential things that, and the point that I'm at right now, not only as an artist, but in my career, is a kind of a notion of revaluing or, or understanding or reconsidering what value is um, so that I can also create a, a space for assessment. Uh, because uh, assessment, I feel now in this kind of uh, wave of kind of um, uh, this epidemic shift that we've kind of uh, have gone through over the past, let's say, you know, last decade at least or two decades. Um, it's kind of interesting to see like how we could reframe into the future um, a notion of Los Angeles uh, because I'm here in Echo Park today. I haven't been here for a while and um, just haven't crossed paths with Echo Park and and I hear all the notion of like, you know, gentrification and all that. I do see that, but it's still ugly as fuck. Like Echo Park is ugly. Like <laughs> it's not very pretty. It doesn't look like Hawaii. It doesn't look like any kind of tropical, um, you know, destination where I would want a vacation. It looks ugly. Like there's still dollar stores and blighted out places next to, you know, coffee shops. So it's not like some kind of magic wand um, obliterated its ugliness. Um, so like, what does it mean when we're going into this future time or this new 2020, this kind of hindsight perspective year where can we assess, can we, uh, re ascribe value to things? And then as artists and cultural producers, like how do we recognize the value that we contribute? Not only that we contribute to communities, but that we contribute to like our artistic community, which is um, also in need of our contributions. I think it's beautiful here. I love Echo Park. I love the hills here. One of my first departments was on Fairbanks and Scott mm. um, on in the hillside uh, courtyard complex. Um, and um, I, I love this neighborhood and I love me a 99 cent store. And most of this damn city is like sun blighted and yeah, ugly. strange. Um, but um, I, I think Echo Park is still a really magical place for me. No, I think yeah. that I think that's great, and it's described. And we could talk to that point in relationship to like how you hold value here. That's like the other point of my story is like if you don't hold value in relationship to like a place and prescribed memory or experiences or how do we. How do we go forward into like a dollar store next to like a little cafe coffee shop that is obviously, you know, transplanted here? Um, how can we, my memory of here, maybe my memory of Echo Park is that I got one of my wisdom tooth pulled here. So like I think that <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, so maybe like that's why I, I prescribe, I prescribe like pain to like my memory here. Like I wasn't thinking about a bungalow, I was getting one, thinking one of my teeth. Well, LA pulled. is a complicated place, Yeah, you know, complicated history. And um, that's what's beautiful about it here, I think, you know. Uh, this is Marcus. Um, but the, back to your question about urgency, um, I'm like 55 years old now, and um, I feel the clock ticking. And so for me, the urgency now is, as an artist is I have only X number of years left on this body, and what am I going to do with it? And how can I do less better? And how can I make better, stronger work slower and better, but with the less time that I have um, alive, because I'm not, I'm not 45, 
but I'm not 65, so I, I time to me is is um, a real issue. I'm always really aware of time now in a different way that um, that I wasn't before. So that's that's what I what what I think about a lot. And then how do I sort of narrow my focus? I've done a lot of work with other artists and supporting other artists and other people hmm. and other places. And so now I'm thinking about who is it that I really want to support? How can I support them better? Um, so I'm trying to do less, but more and better. And that's kind of kind of weighing, been weighing on my mind. I think one of the things that I think about quite often in, in my own practice, which has had a lot of um, strange paths and, and forms that it's taken over the years, um, and a lot of it has been kind of working completely outside of institutional settings, mm deliberately, um, and now, um, and, and Marcus, we were talking about this uh, a bit earlier, but just this idea of having done so many things and worn so many hats and, and that kind of being an acceptable thing to do now, whereas before um, it was seen as unfocused or scattered. And, mm-hmm. and so um, just kind of now having um, some access to institutions for me in the last couple of years and and sitting with the discomfort of that actually, Mm. um, of kind of um, now having this legitimacy or um, agency recognition and then feeling like how do I keep staying True. In a way, it was easier to stay truer to a voice without having that, uh, with, because it, whether you realize it or not, you start to mold yourself to uh, the shape of an institution. And um, so just thinking a lot about that, mm. working inside or outside, and how, how to balance those things, or not balance, and mm-hmm. then just choose to go outside the building and continue to break things apart. Yeah, it does show. I've worked a lot inside of the institution and um, inside and outside, and it does shape how you think, even though you don't want it to. Um, you can't help but let it rub off on you, the systems, and sort of how they think. How they think. It's good, good things also. You know, a lot of good things come out of like knowing how to look at a spreadsheet, knowing how to deal with the, all those you know, admin sorts of things. But um, it can be really dispiriting and sort of spirit-breaking um, working within institutions. How do we start to compare ourselves to, it becomes comparative and competitive, I find, and mm-hmm. that's really disheartening sometimes, or, or I find my desires or my aspirations shifting, and so sometimes I have to really step back and, and kind of think about what my original intention was. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I was able to, I think, put my finger on three urgencies for me at the moment. Uh, the first is... Uh, just desiring complexity. Um, I think so much of the way um, the world works is about simplifying matters uh, at every turn. And, um, and so I think that that uh, deep desire for, for complexity uh, has been um, a really uh, kind of driving force for me. I mean, especially because uh, you know, the people I love and care about are, are those whose histories are silenced or erased altogether. And so uh, for me, you know, 
the task of, of that listening isn't as simple as just, <laughs> you know, uh, recording a story um, in part and parcel because I think that every um, part of the, the ways in which we've learned how to do these things is broken. Um, and so I think uh, a lot of the, the work that I've been doing um, has been invested in considering uh, how it is that one can um, do that kind of memory work, you know, from, from the very beginning to the end of the project, from the very kind of conceptualization of the, the grammars of documentation up to, you know, the ways in which um, um, the afterlives, you know, of, of that quote-unquote document or, or whatever it might be. Um, the second urgency that I, I felt I could put my finger on in my own practice is um, really shifting the conversation away from representation and toward ethics. You know, I think that uh, um, so much of uh, discussions around uh, quote-unquote marginalized groups becoming visible uh, really involve uh, ideas of you know, representation, which can off, more often than not get caught up in good or bad, <laughs> you know, or accurate or not accurate. And so um, a lot of my more recent work has really been trying to think about uh, the ways in which, for example, imperialist um, dynamics continue into the present in forms that seem very uh, well-intentioned, such as human rights discourse, but in fact reproduce a lot of the positions um, in the field that are um, from that colonial legacy. And the third urgency that I could pinpoint uh, is really a, um, a struggle for memory. And, uh, you know, I think that um, when we discuss politics, we often get caught up in ideas of the now, <laughs> you know. And for me, um, really uh, breaking open ideas of temporality to think about how... Uh, um, our present is so layered with the past and the future is integral to um, understanding how we can think about possible futures that don't reproduce the violences of the present. Hmm. And how do you think you enact that shift from representation to ethics? Like, what's the strategy that you use to do that? Um, for example, so I just uh, published a, a book with Viet Le mm -hmm. um, called White Gaze. And, you know, the book is pretty simple at its core. It's, it's kind of dealing with an archive of National Geographic magazines. And I set certain limits to myself in dealing with these magazines insofar as, you know, I was just working with um, the page, pages that I selected. And th those pages that I selected were really... Um, you know, ones that I was gravitating toward where there was a kind of uh, um, either a, a really a, a white subject, I mean, a white photographer or a white researcher looking at their quote-unquote other, but then also, you know, I, I think National Geographic is so much also a history of photography itself. Mm. So where, you know, the apparatus, you know, would at times be, you know, related to a gun or... Um, there was a kind of like fetishization of, of this, you know, um, technology, you know, in, in a bunch of these images. But at any rate, you know, there were these pages that I selected from magazines and then just started kind of um, doing poetic sub subtraction so that I would basically rewrite 
the text in relation to the images. You know, obviously kind of playing with uh, the power dynamics that are always present between text and image, the way in which, you know, images can really mean infinite things and the text ideologically grounds that image depending on, you know, whatever, you know, wants to be said by um, power usually. But, you know, with that publication, I, I think that it was, I, I say it's uh, too easy and too difficult. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's too easy. Uh, because on the one hand, I think uh, everyone wants to distance themselves from, you know, the racist representations of, you know, the, the past. You know, I think white folks might want to be like, oh, you know, like, uh, I don't think that way. <laughs> you know, I've never thought that way. Or um, folks of color might be like, you know, think, you know, that doesn't exist anymore, thank goodness. Um, but I think the more difficult part is... Uh, you know, really seeing the ways in which, you know, these positions in the field uh, continue into the present uh, in ways that don't necessarily look like, you know, these kind of blatant racist representations, but that in fact um, are kind of passing, you know, because they reinstall certain, yeah, I, I think, understandings of where we are, where we position ourselves in the world. So, I mean, just, just to make that long story short, uh, you know, where that has taken me is just in asserting that, you know, that uh, um, that work in, in White Gaze is not just about the past, but very much about the present. And that's um, led me into all kinds of terrain that I never thought I would get into. For example, National Ge Geographic came after us for licensing. And, you know, that got us into... Uh, you know, arguing for fair use and actually getting into a whole realm of intellectual property issues. I was issues. going to ask you how it is that you complicate things because you said yeah. you like to complicate things. Right. And you just answered the question. Right. <laughs> and then it got us into a whole realm of intellectual Licensing. property issues, which yeah. are, in fact, you know, again, you know, uh, from that whole legacy of colonial regimes of property. Um, and, you know, I think that that has taken us into really, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to kind of parse out because I, I have so many different aspects of this that I'm working on right now, but really thinking about these questions of intellectual property um, uh, for the present and how that's very much linked, again, to uh, a question of ethics as opposed to representation. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because you said on the one hand, you know, especially for people of color, we can see kind of that very superficial level of... Um, problematic representation is it has been removed from the public eye but then at the structural level of who actually owns these archives and the fact that they're fighting back it's just being perpetuated right at, at, at a, almost a more endemic or insidious level right um, so that's interesting to think about yeah and I mean it's all of the ways in which I would say you know whiteness lives uh, in ways that are um, and it lives in ourselves and in ways that we're sometimes blind yeah, to. I've been calling that kind of self-eating of those models of representation the brown ceiling because there's like, we're talking about like the structural, that Mario Ibarra again. So like the notions that the structural supports are still there, like the girders and everything, the scaffolds that have built up representation of POC throughout the years and all those things within media and representation that we've then like internalized. And, but 
as we're kind of uh, unpacking these things as in groups like this and, and like what it sounds like in your book, uh, we fight, we hit the internalized, what I call the brown ceiling, which is pretty much made up of bullshit that we placed on top of ourselves. Like it's like, um, it's not necessarily the glass ceiling where we could see through to like something else. It's like our own bullshit that we've put on top of our own selves because we've internalized all these structures of preceding racisms and stereotypical images, et cetera. So like, for example, being like, a Latino male in the United States for a long time, like with my generation, the only representation that we saw of ourselves in popular culture or media was criminalized, right? So like, uh, and within the prison industrial complex. So like popular films in the early 90s were like uh, prison-based films. Like those were the only films where we saw like Latino male representation at all. And uh, so then on the streets or in neighborhoods, young men internalize these notions of like, oh yeah, like that's the model of like Latino male existence in the United States is that this rite of passage and it normalized the prison industrial complex. And then the internal politics that happened within the prison industrial complex then spilled over out into the street. So not only were we looking at like internalized racism or literal racism in terms of power structures like the LAPD, like the white LAPD or whatever, but also within the race relations that happen within prison where they self-segregate because of whatever politics or like, um, you know, everybody was separated in relationship to race and something like we were just talking about earlier, like the race riot or the riot in 92 could happen because everybody was so uh, compartmentalized in terms of their sections uh, that people had internalized in prison industrial complex. So like one, one thing is to like kind of dismantle like the white gaze in relationship to how it, it is structurally, but then the more, the more complicated part or where I feel like my work lies is like, how do you start dismantling that, uh, what I'm calling the brown ceiling within ourselves so that we can uh, see ourselves in other lights and be able to move in other realms that uh, we might have not had, um, you know, we ran a program, my wife and I founded a space called Slanguage Studio. We run, a play, we run spaces for young artists. And a few years ago, we were running a program called You Gotta See It to Be It because we hadn't seen other models, uh, you know, getting their PhDs or working in museums or whatever, you know, artists and expressing themselves. I feel like there are a lot of examples of people that want to express themselves, but within those structural supports that kind of build the infrastructure of culture and allow platforms for us to be in, there weren't so many models of, so we needed to kind of see that. And uh, so uh, to, to, to kind of break through those things, we need to see these things. And if we don't have the words for them, like within uh, our own, you know, pantheon of language, if we don't have the words to describe those things, then we can't see it. We can't get to it because we don't know the word to type into our Google map. We don't, we don't have that address. So being able to buffer and, and kind of, uh, build language within POCs communities is really important. And I feel that, um, like what you're talking about in relationship to like your book or what, um, you were saying you do with the the radio and the uh, the clubs and what all of our kind of cultural work is is about kind of trying to propagate propagate and create platforms so that this language can be distributed and and, and seen and shared and um, but it isn't so much that we can because the white power structure white young people are so 
uh, adamant, or at least white young people are adamant about saying that there is no uh, white privilege. Like, they, in classrooms, I was just hearing my friend talk about how he was TAing in a college and the kids were really upset when the notion of white privilege came up, the white kids. But then in, in reading like the, the New York Times, the 1619 project, you understand that like white privilege isn't just this thing that's happening right now in, in this condition, but it is this condition that was begun here in, in the United States, at least with the buying and selling of slaves, right? And then um, how that led to a kind of handicap for POC to acquire wealth. And then post-World War II, when the United States wasn't bombed, their infra our infrastructure wasn't annihilated like it was in Europe or abroad in Asia, um, that allowed us to have this like other head start in relationship to like post-war and in industrial projects, right? Um, so we have like this white uh, privilege that is engaged for like this period of time that's like really is so like if you so people just see it as the now so what you're saying in relationship to like and what i heard you say like well we're not just looking at the like most recent past or like we're looking at like the future and like we're looking at like fat past present future tenses simultaneously uh i think that that's a interesting way to look at it and uh so that we can have um you know, a, more of a broader spectrum of like what it is our, our proposal could be for, you know, 20, 2020. I'm really into this 2020 thing. Like, I'm really excited about it because it's like, oh, 2020. And I saw this meme the other day that said that Barbara Walters should announce the ball drop in New York City because she was like, I am Barbara Walters and this is 2020, right? Like, I really want to see what the excitement and fashion and, and music and uh, culture and ideas can kind of bring to the table because I'm kind of bored. Like, uh, the, the, like we've been using a kind of platform that I feel like, like I'm familiar with. I know that in teaching and in academia, like the, there should be like a kind of um, that that still needs to be like put out there. But like for me personally, I'm like, oh, what is this thing that I don't know yet? Um, what is it going to look like? And how is culture going to look like? And um, how it will be modeled? And who will be driving it? And um, it's interesting to hear you what you all do because I, I see that I could see that within you, but in my everyday life I'm just like oh like we we need more of you right <laughs> we need more of us in the driver's seat so that we're modeling this this kind of experience and these kind of thoughts. I mean, I was curious because all of you have also talked about I mean part of the modeling I think maybe as a sort of segue that each of you talked about working within institutions, but at some moments there was a, a, a deficit or a lack that you felt needed to be addressed and you created something or enacted something to meet those needs that built different communities and set up different frameworks, um, which required, I mean, e each of you, Just I'm just thinking of Michelle and the work that you started, uh, Land, um, and thinking about like the amount of work that you were doing and teaching at the same time and doing an artistic career in order to meet those needs, those urgencies. Can you talk a little bit about that? All of you have, have in various ways done that. Yeah, so um, between 2015 and 2018, um, I founded and co-organized an um, autonomous uh, pedagogical platform called Atlan's Edge. Uh, and, you know, it arose for me out of very real life circumstances. I 
I don't know if any of you know this story. I've been teaching at CalArts mm -hmm. <laughs> for many, many years, um, seven. And, uh, you know, I was in a program um, where uh, the only women of color were the two adjuncts, basically. Mm -hmm. We call them visitors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we were like perpetual visitors. <laughs> And, you know, it was, it was a situation that's so typical for, for academia, but I think it's particularly within art, mm -hmm. um, which is that when, um, you know, two hires finally came up, both of those hires went to white women. And, you know, I, I think that um, for myself, it was a, a, a moment of uh, really understanding the, the world that I was in. Um, you know, I, I think I still had some internalized idea that if I worked hard enough <laughs> and did my job well enough, um, <laughs> that, you know, good things would happen. And, you know, I, I had already had like, you know, four years of student petitions and, you know, really, really strong student support. I was telling my students they have to have a hunger strike. Like, <laughs> you want me to come back next term, have a hunger strike? <laughs> so for me, it was... Um, Unfathomable, and I, for me, like just for me to say that is already kind of breaking my brown ceiling, <laughs> mm -hmm. because I I have been conditioned in my life to understand that you know I know I have to, my dad told me when I was young you have to work twice as hard, okay I understood from this circumstance okay yeah I do have to work twice as hard, but none of the benefits were reaped, and I had internalized that idea that you know if I worked hard enough I could get it, so that um, kind of shattered any idea that uh, there was a place for me in institutions um, and uh, really set the fire under my ass to try to organize something different. And that's where, you know, Atlan's Age came from. You know, Mario and I, the other Mario, <laughs> on Diveros and I uh, uh, teach, taught together at a place called the Vermont College of Fine Art, which was the first uh, low residency MFA program. And that was another exploitative <laughs> labor condition uh, because uh, basically it's a it's a whole school with no full-time faculty and no benefits for anybody mm. it's um, so the basically the college is getting away with not having to do that expense while still getting income from a student body um, in a low residency program where basically students come for you know one week out of every semester and and do their work uh, back home you know with a, a mentor but I thought Okay, there are all these exploitative situations happening, but, <laughs> you know, there's a way in which that whole model of Vermont can happen at a grassroots level. It already is kind of grassroots. Mm -hmm. So I basically, you know, borrowed that model um, and tried to implement it in Los Angeles uh, and basically really focusing um, our energies because it was a, always a co-organized space of women and queers of color for the most part. Um, and, you know, setting up a, a basically a fellowship program where 15 uh, individuals who wanted to, um, um, you know, be a part of this conversation could be paired with a mentor and then have, uh, you know, weekly discussions of sorts, kind of like uh, school. <laughs> yeah, but these alternative forms of education are, are really, really important. I mean, I didn't yeah. go to, um, I only have a high school degree. I didn't attend uh, university. And I feel like I'm an alumni of, you know, the 18th Street Art Center and Highways Performance Spaces, where I received my art, art education was like literally doing it and building it with, you know, all of our two hands together as a team. Absolutely. And uh, having now worked inside of um, graduate programs 
Yeah. Um, I can see like what they're not teaching mm -hmm. in these grad programs based on like what I've learned um, starting these different arts organizations. Um, and it's um, there's a need for that, especially um, among uh, artists of color. Like it's surprising to me some of the um, artists, younger artists of color that I've met, sort of the, the holes in their education when they come out of these institutions, then it's a little kind of surprising to me. Right. But I love these artist-led initiatives that are happening right now. There's so many now yeah. um, in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, I mean, we were certainly inspired by language and trying to just think about the necessity of intergenerational spaces. And, you know, I mean, it was a, a huge feat and, like... <laughs> huge. <laughs> it was a huge yeah. feat and, you know, so many... Um, amazing folks involved, and I, I wish I had the list. I appear of everyone who was so involved. So many careers, but, um, but you know, it was also uh, uh, a huge amount of energy that, at, at the end of the day, was, I think, for the most part, unsustainable by those who were doing some of the core organizing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's you know, the kind of wall I think we're continually facing mm. when we try to do things differently, right? Like because it takes. Um, that fire under your ass to <laughs> to get that energy out of nowhere to do it, um, and then you could you know start to partner with institutions, but you understand that there's something that you're always losing when you do so. So it's like that constant negotiation at all levels. Yeah, every dollar has a string. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that sort of crisscrossing that you like? What's one of the key differences in say in relationship to organizing communities or building something, working inside and outside? Because you had talked about that, a little hesitancy or or at least self-critiquing, self-analyzing, self-assessing. So uh, this is Arshia here. And I think before I answer your question, sure. because we were talking earlier kind of about the project, um, it's so uh, we're referring, I think, specifically to Discostan, which is uh, one lens of, of my practice, and that kind of started really from um, a, a very personal place of, of being um, here in the U.S. as an immigrant coming from a very specific family, having a sort of an exile from them, and going to art school, leaving, having, having a, um, I, I was an experimental filmmaker, that's kind of where I began, hmm. um, and then kind of taking a break from that and really trying to um, be outside of kind of the economy of, at that time, it was film festivals and um, working in the industry, in the film industry, and at the same time dealing with this kind of delayed separation from, from my history, from my family history. And um, I kind of became an accidental archivist through that process of really gathering materials from, uh, especially music and, and all of this stuff um, from what I had grown up with and really playing it to myself in my living room and feeling sad about, you know, where mm. am I from and where, where do I belong? And then building up this huge um, archive and starting to kind of slowly play it out and share it. And I didn't realize that there would be a community uh, for this and, or that anyone else would have an interest and it, turned out that there were people that wanted um, kind of this access to this uh, this music and media and um, stuff that had kind of gotten, you know, that wasn't necessarily, like, was in between 
kind of institutional recognition um, and exported pop culture, and specifically from the regions of South Asia um, and the Middle East or Swana. And um, that turned into Discostan, which really functioned outside of, um, and still does, mm. outside of um, institutional support uh, for the most part. And it, um, I was interested in, uh, Michelle, what you were saying about memory, because for me it really did start from a place of nostalgia and really kind of um, um, trying to look back to this past, and especially for uh, what I can speak to, which is... Um, South Asia, India specifically, where I was born, and the colonial history there, there's a, a, a tendency to kind of, especially in this moment, to look at um, colonization and the internalization of that and um, look at the time before that as kind of this Eden, you know, uh, there, a time when there was no wrong or a time when queerness was accepted, or, you know, all of these kinds of dialogues. And and um, really kind of thinking about, well, is that true and does that serve us to kind of look back to that golden time? And I, I think what you're talking about is complicating that idea as well. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about, about those things and how rather than looking back to the past as a golden time, it can be looked at as um, a way as you said, to think about building ideas of future, hmm. of the future. Um, so in terms of um, the question about community and, um, and working within um, institutions and outside of institutions, there's different narratives that you build, you know, to be honest, um, in order to be within the institution. And there's a different narrative that we have within our community. So there's certain spaces, um, for example, an offshoot of, um, you know, with some collaborators that have been part of Discostan is, is a group called the Muzis, which is um, a group of queer Muslim, uh, people of Muslim origin that are um, looking at our own cultural histories outside of the lens of orthodoxy and outside of the Western gaze. And a lot of our events have been um, closed to um, the public, you know, they're, they're, and some of them are open and some of them are closed and some of them are, you know, sharing knowledge amongst ourselves. And, and um, so that's one, one strategy um, that, that we've used um, to kind of be both, you know, true to our community while, you know, still having it be accessible. Mm -hmm. And Marcus, what about the, you had mentioned earlier about doing less and better? And I know that in, in the interviews and what I've read about your interest in creating support for others, can you talk a little bit about it? Well, I like what Arsha, I have, just to just what Arsha was saying about um, the sort of closed circle, I guess, and closed community. Like my current project, it's in progress, it's called Macho Stereo. And it's uh, very much inspired by music, hence the name, Macho Stereo. And, um, but loosely based on and inspired by Pedro Paramo's book, by the Juan Rulfo's book, um, Pedro Paramo. And um, I wanted to talk to men about their fathers. Like, I, I was really interested in this idea 
of just having these private conversations with men. Like I was in residency at the LA Public Library. I was talking to my colleagues, um, and I learned so much from, um, like, less. Like it was, I could do more by by one person at a time. Uh, I, I felt like I had more of an impact. My art did as a, as a performance artist uh, with a one person collaboration slash audience member. Um, than doing a larger work in front of a, a lot of people. And I felt it was um, a really enriching thing in a way where I could do less, <laughs> um, but do more. Um, and uh, I'm still working on that. I'm still interviewing um, men um, about their fathers, which, which was, um, we'll call it, that was even complicated because of all the issues that were, not issues, but like how we look at gender today and how things are, are a little different um, or not different, just kind of coming to light. Um, it was interesting how um, uh, it was an education for me. Um, but um, but yeah, I like this notion of, of sort of stepping away and not being part of this larger narrative of, uh, but really just kind of cl closing the door and just having a private conversation and a discussion around, around um, uh, Whatever the issue, you know, it is either me and men and their fathers, or, or you and and the um, uh, uh, people of uh, Muslim origin. I think we all walk away from that. Um, it's kind of like the pond, like ripple in the pond effect. I think, mm -hmm. where um, where I I can do be a better artist from these individual interactions than than had I done just one larger. I mean, I did wind up doing one larger performance in collaboration um, with the team. But that all that came from all these smaller, intimate conversations that I had with men. Yeah, the the way I learned that lesson that y'all are talking about was um, from uh, Carla and I were in Mexico and we were, we were at some place and this man from the Museum of Anthropology was talking to us and he was telling us how he his job was to go into indigenous communities around Mexico and like help facilitate projects with them, and he was saying this the saddest part. Uh, that one of the one of the I want to call it I don't want to call one of his projects he did with the group was that there was this little community way up in the mountains and they were buses that were coming up uh, to visit them of tourists and so they would only don their uh, traditional costumes and do their dances like it evolved to where they only did their dances for the tourists mm -hmm. and they were like and when he was working with them I was like that's horrible like you guys have come up with all these beautiful dances and costumes like you need to still continue doing them for yourselves like to dance for yourselves like with their traditional costumes and things not for an audience not for the tourists that give you tip money or whatever but for yourselves and I think that's what you're talking about is like stepping out of like because we 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 are always in this kind of state of like playing and acting and becoming for uh, somebody else to view us and see how we are being perceived and all this stuff. But once we make a transition from becoming into being, then we don't need to worry about an audience. And I think that is where like we can transition from like dancing for, for tourists and for tips to dancing for ourselves again, which both of the, the Moosies, you call it, and the Macho Stereo Project, when you bring it into like a kind of dancing for ourselves position, that's where the real stuff comes out because it's in a state of being. It's not in a state of doing things for like an audience. And um, I think that those, those, those uh, 
moments are super important important and where all the real bubbly stuff comes up mm -hmm. because you're not worried about an audience anymore you're just worried about like oh how are we being with each other how are we uh communicating how are we sharing and um but it's still a commodity like the tourist dances have to happen like yeah I, no, know, I lived in, I, in puerto vallarta yeah no, I understand. and uh like the like the those tourist dances unfortunately is how people put food on the table yeah but you can't stop you can't no. stop the ones for yourself either right. absolutely so it's like not. a balance i guess yeah. it, i guess because right. you're not stopping you know doing work that you're going to probably collect right. from that and turn into but i'm something. still trying to figure out how to commodify and monetize what it is that i'm making i still have to put like i yeah, still no. have to but you have to get to the point of being able right. to be in, a, in this kind of closed uh Assessment first, time. Back to what first, I was talking about in yeah. terms of uh, uh, urgency. Like, uh, from the, when you asked about the urgency, like we need to be in this kind of uh, assessment time with each other so that we can uh, come out and have access, mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, if you think of it, like if you went to a mechanic and you pulled up into their shop and they didn't give you a free estimate, <laughs> like they didn't open the hood and look under the car and and tell you like, hey, I, this is this, and you need to fix this, this. If they just, if you just pulled in and they were like, 800 bucks, you'd be like, for what? You didn't even open the hood. You didn't even look under there. You didn't even check the tires. How do you know it's 800 bucks? Like, you're just throwing this number at me. And, they, but if they tell you like, hey, they put the little machine on it and uh, do that stuff, then you're like, okay, this, that, and they break it down. And they have that assessment time for you, uh, then you will give them access to your wallet and to the car to fix it, right? But if you don't have that assessment time, and I feel like that's what I was saying, the urgency is for me is like being able to spend what I think both of y'all are talking about with the closed group and the the one on one meetings is like how do you how do we place value on that assessment time as being just as equal to like whatever it's going to come out to be, whatever that monetized commodity right. thing is going to be right. at the end of the day for an audience, when you step back into the, you know, that realm. Uh, but how do we give ourselves, allot ourselves, uh, give ourselves the benefit and the grace of having that assessment time, which it sounds like y'all are doing with your projects and, that's what I'm feeling like. We need that urgency now because we are in a, a the Los Angeles art community has changed. Uh, you know, the landscape has changed. You know, we have, you know, the gallery system is definitely in play here. And when I hear younger artists talk, uh, they're not talking about like, you know, the performances so much that they're going to go see at a nonprofit space or be working with a nonprofit space, but they talk about like which entities they're going to work with in relationship to commercial galleries. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of more akin to the conversations that will happen with young students in New York than what it was when I was talking when I was a student here in Los Angeles. Like I didn't even know that there was uh, what commercial galleries did. I just, I was at Lace. I was so happy to have my first show at Lace. And I was like, that was my place. And I, like, I still have like a bucket list thing that I want to check off to do an addition with lace like if I get to do that that's like on my my bucket list right and because um, I remember seeing all the artists that did those and I was so inspired by them so um yeah like how do we give ourselves which is what you're talking about in relationship to post-colonial theory is like the third space right like what happens between like what you're talking about the romantic time of like pre-colonialism like and then the British soldiers come and they bring this and that and this and that. And then then the revolution happens and then there's the British soldiers go home. It's like what as like a kind of, again, this future past, no, past, future, present, however, tenses, can we pluck and pull from to create 
our future to create, but it needs that assessment time that you're talking about. That like I, I feel like it is a tourist economy. I feel like there's a lot of, of parallels between the tourist economy and the art world uh. because I feel like we have to really do a lot of things uh, to make money in order to really do to really do our practice. Yeah, like a lot of my practice consists of things that I really can't even sell mm. or sometimes can't even show with a lot of people, but I have to find a way to do my little tourist dance, uh-huh. um, you know, and me and my monkey can dance, uh-huh. you know, so that I yeah. can pay you my rent. Willy, you need the Willy Walker gold ticket. But I love that. But I love <laughs> fucking with that notion of what is the tourist dance right. and, and how do we sh- reshape that tourist dance and how, and, and you do see the, you, subvert it you too. do see that happening. Uh, like I've been in, in and out of Mexico City a lot lately and you kind of do see this subversion of, of like sort of this idea of traditional things where now you kind of see things like a little shifting a little bit. And I think that that um, that uh, we need to just fuck it all up. But can I ask you a question, though, Marcus? Um, like when you're seeing the things from the shift, like this is one thing that I'm always concerned about. Like if it shifts too much and doesn't hold anything to like the language that is communicable and just becomes this whole like other abstract thing is there an audience that can engage that or is there something like within like santeria culture where you have to get like the orisha gets sublimated by the nino de de atoche statue and like so there's like a communicable communicable like sign signifier relationship that will be the porthole for like all this other shifting and subverting well, well, Santeria is a syncretic tradition mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's born from, from need, uh, from syncretism. And it's an amalgam of all the different religions in West Africa and it's a result of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that syncretism and that fluidity needs to continue now into the 21st century. And I think that things need to shift and move. And I think that a lot of what we see, a lot of practitioners and gatekeepers of more traditional forms you know, really get upset when those of us come in and kind of modify it or or abstract it or reinterpret it. And I feel like that, to me, that's where the interesting things are, is those those risky, vulnerable things that people try to kind of evolve the form forward, if, especially when things were born out of a need for syncretism. Why does it have to freeze in time? Why can't it continue to be liquid and syncretic into the future? Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Like it's frozen. Like you don't want it to be frozen in that romantic time. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I was also reminded of this saying. I'm from Hyderabad, which is in South India, and there's a saying about people from that city that they spend half the time regretting something that they didn't do, and then the other half the time talking about that regret. And so it's like we <laughs> <laughs> got brown sitting issues. <laughs> it's like a culture that is so invested in this romanticism. Um, you know, of the past. Uh, there's so many things, you know, here that I've just been kind of thinking about um, when you were talking about the the tourist dance. And then I was thinking immediately in relation to what you were saying, Marcus, about artists having this tourist kind of economy, yeah, that we're dancing for institutions, you know. Mm-hmm. And right now there's this kind of focus and interest on uh, research-based work and especially, you know, funding being given to lots of artists of color and, you know, the diversity checkbox. And um, and then that leads to almost this performance of ourselves that's starting to feel 
dangerous um, mm. because there is this, you know, and that's, I mean, the Muzis again. And Muzis uh, comes from uh, Muzis, which is a derogatory term used for mm. Muslims. And we, uh, we being, uh, it's a collaborative project with Amitas Motavali and Sasha Ali, um, took that and kind of like made a playful spin on it. But um, really thinking about that, for example, I think the idea of closing or having closed sessions came up because there's a tradition of magic in Islam, and um, and you know we all kind of know it from our grandmothers and our and you know um, chapters in the Quran and 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 things that have been exchanged. We were given a residency at the Women's Center for Creative Work, and you know with all of kind of um, the interest in. Um, astrology and and all these things it was a perfect fit right let's have a session on magic and islam and we were like wait we don't this is not a teach-in session we don't want mm -hmm. to open this up to everyone this is actually um sacred knowledge that we don't talk about amongst ourselves because there's also been this very sanitized orthodox version of islam that's been propagated through the gulf through missionaries that have been sent and um because it is often a women's realm as well that's been um, and in an in indigenous knowledge that's been kind of suppressed from both sides. And so we actually want to get together and talk about what we know and, um, you know, share stories, but it's not to be performed mm -hmm. for, um, you know, outside audiences or granting institutions. And, but I do think there is definitely like, it's very sexy, you know, to share that knowledge and it's, it, it does get you funding. And so, um, I don't know, there's this kind of, I, I mean, I'm starting to kind of retract from that and from that um, performance mm. of those things, you know. Mm. Yeah, I'm actually um, in the process of co-editing co an issue of um, Art Practical with Yusuf Omowale, who is the uh, director of the Southern California Library, and it's all about the about violence of inclusion. <laughs> and... Um, this whole kind of uh, terrain that we're on right now of, yeah. of the sexiness of art, brown, black, queer, indigenous, disabled, <laughs> undocumented immigrant bodies in you know these spaces that at one point never saw us, but now want us so badly. <laughs> they want us how they want us though. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the artists or join in the conversation, visit extraonline.org or find us on Instagram. This series was made possible by generous support from California Arts Council Arts and Public Media Grant, the Michael Asher Foundation, and KCET's Artbound. Recorded at Catasonic Studios in Echo Park by Mark Wheaton with production assistance from Sarah Ellen Fowler and Theo Greenlee. Thank you to Shaolin Dub for our theme song.